Hello, this is Dr. David Blumke in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm the editor of the journal Radiology. This is part one of our June 2019 podcast. The goal of these podcasts is to present a brief summary of key research in our field to keep you up to date. Today, we will have one review article and three research articles, so let's proceed to today's topics. We will start with an article about genetically determined cancer. The title is BRCA Mutation Carriers, Breast and Ovarian Cancer Screening Guidelines in Imaging Considerations. The first author is Dr. Mai Elizabeth. The senior author is Dr. Elizabeth Sadowski from the University of Wisconsin. Background. Let's start with the background on genetic abnormalities associated with breast and ovarian cancer. There are two genes that we associate with breast cancer. These genes are BRCA1 and BRCA2. The abbreviation BRCA stands for breast cancer. Radiologists are not geneticists, but we still know that genes are there for a reason. Genes do not normally cause cancer. There are more than 30,000 human genes, and the BRCA1 gene is supposed to encode a normal protein just like our other 30,000 genes. Normally, BRCA1 and 2 genes each produce a different protein that is involved in repairing damaged DNA. Or, if the DNA cannot be repaired properly, the protein participates in destroying the damaged cell. Either one or both strands of the double-stranded helix of DNA are constantly being broken, so repair is essential. If both DNA strands are broken, the repair process is difficult. This is when the BRCA protein is especially needed. So we need the BRCA protein. But if there is a mutation in the BRCA gene so that a damaged BRCA protein is made, then double-stranded DNA will not be repaired. This results in increased risk for breast cancer. Of course, we have two copies of every gene, but having only one damaged gene is enough to be associated with cancer. As of 2015, there were only two living adults known to have both BRCA genes that were damaged. Both of those adults had congenital or developmental problems as well as cancer. Even though we are not genetics experts, we still have to use the correct terms. We do not say that a patient has a BRCA gene. Everyone has BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. Instead, we should say that a patient has a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation. But there is no single mutation in the BRCA1 gene that causes cancer. The DNA for BRCA1 has about 80,000 base pairs. More than 1,800 different mutations of that gene have been identified. Hundreds of those mutations are known to cause cancer in both men and women. The gene that encodes for the BRCA protein to repair damaged DNA was discovered at UC Berkeley in 1990. BRCA is located on chromosome 17. Besides breast cancer, BRCA1 and 2 are also famous genes because a company called Myriad Genetics patented the methods for detecting mutations in these genes in 1994. However, the United States Supreme Court invalidated the patents in 2013 
indicating that a naturally occurring DNA segment is a product of nature and not patent eligible merely because it has been isolated. Now, what about breast cancer and ovarian cancer? In round numbers, about 5% of all women with breast cancer have a mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2. For ovarian cancer, BRCA1 mutations are present in about 18% of individuals. People with these genes have an accumulation of damaged DNA. If an individual has a BRCA1 mutation, the risk of breast cancer is 90% and 50% for ovarian cancer over their lifetime. For BRCA2, the risk of breast cancer is about 50% and 20% for ovarian cancer. The risk is highest at young age, less than 50 years old. There are other cancers that cluster with these gene mutations. These are pancreatic cancer, melanoma, and prostate cancer in men. Finally, researchers believe there is a BRCA3 gene as well, but the genetic location has not been determined. A few other facts. These gene mutations are autosomal dominant. Children have a 50% chance of receiving the same gene mutation from their parents. The gene mutation abnormality in the general population is relatively low, about 1 in 400, but it is 1 in 40 individuals with Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. There are other founder mutations with these same gene abnormalities in a range of populations, including those of Dutch, Spanish, and German heritage. Next, how do we screen for cancer for patients with these gene mutations? What are the current screening guidelines? Patients who test positive for BRCA1 or 2 mutation are recommended to have imaging with MRI and mammography every 12 months starting as early as age 25. Bilateral prophylactic mastectomy may be offered to reduce the risk of breast cancer by 95%. Two national societies also recommend that women have prophylactic bilateral ovarian removal after childbearing or after about age 35. Patients who have not had ovarian resection are screened regularly for serum CA125 levels and with pelvic ultrasound. A little detail about breast cancer expression. In BRCA1 mutation, the most common cancer is poorly differentiated infiltrating ductal carcinoma. Many tumors are triple negative, estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor negative with low HER2 overexpression. These types are the most resistant to treatment. For BRCA2 breast cancer, those do not have a specific subtype but appear more like tumor types in the general population. DCIS is also more common with BRCA2, but not with BRCA1. Breast MRI is the most effective screening method. At a young age, 25 or 30 years, breast density may be high and tumors difficult to identify by mammography. But the sensitivity of MRI for tumors in these patients is greater than 90%. I was a researcher in a breast cancer screening trial with MRI that we published in this journal in 2007 involving about 200 patients. The sensitivity of MRI in our study was 100%. One feature I recall when doing research about MRI in breast cancer. These were the only research studies I ever did where recruitment finished earlier than expected. Normally, recruiting patients took forever and took tremendous effort in advertising. Not for breast cancer and MRI. Patients wanted to and needed to participate. 
For BRCA1 and 2, the sensitivity of mammography is only about 30 or 40 percent, but the combination of MRI and mammography identifies the majority of tumors. One approach is to alternate screening with mammography followed by MRI six months later. Now, what do these tumors look like? BRCA-associated breast cancers can be overlooked because they more often look round or oval versus the speculated irregular appearance of invasive breast cancer. A first-year resident could mistake the tumor for a fibroadenoma. However, on MRI, fibroadenoma has non-enhancing septations, but BRCA-associated tumors do not have those septations. Regarding ultrasound, Ultrasound is not recommended as a screening modality for these patients. Ultrasound is not as effective as MRI. What about ovarian cancer? The most common pathologic type is high-grade serous carcinoma for both BRCA1 and 2 mutations. This is also the most common type of epithelial ovarian cancer in the general population. The tumors are high-grade with short doubling times and are aggressive with poor survival rates. Can we find early ovarian tumors? Early tumors will be small, less than 3 centimeters. The high-grade serous subtype can be almost completely solid and difficult to identify versus adjacent ovarian tissue. The mass may be ovarian or in the fallopian tube. That's a brief overview of BRCA mutations and their associated tumors. These patients will have frequent imaging starting at an early age. Knowledge of tumor types and appearances is therefore essential. The next research article is about a straightforward topic, shoulder MRI. The title is Preoperative MRI Shoulder Findings Associated with Clinical Outcome One Year After Rotator Cuff Repair. The first author is Dr. Richard Kajowski. The senior author is Michael Toot. The authors are from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Background. Many of us have interpreted shoulder MRI. Knee and shoulder MRI are extremely common exams. I read these MRI exams in the first part of my career for about 15 years, but then MSK radiology became more specialized. Our MSK radiologists now interpret shoulder MRI, providing better specialization and better feedback to our colleagues in orthopedic surgery. One point of interest to me, I stopped reading shoulder MRI about 10 years ago. How has shoulder MRI changed since then? Interestingly, not at all. Let's look at the shoulder MRI protocol used in this study. The most important sequences are the coronal and sagittal oblique T2 images, both done with fat suppression. Remember that fat suppression makes everything quite dark. Therefore, you do not need long TE times for the T2 images. The TE time used in this paper is intermediate at 45 milliseconds. There are just two other main sequences, a sagittal oblique T1 used to assess the morphology of the AC joint. Is the acromion nicely curved, or is there an anterior downslope or a hook that narrows the outlet for the rotator cuff? Finally, an axial proton density image with fat sat is used to assess the labrum. The TE time is 20 to 25 milliseconds. Overall, the protocol is short and efficient. The authors for this paper were interested in the relationship between the severity of rotator cuff injury on MRI and how well patients did after surgical repair of the rotator cuff. Of course, we might expect that surgical success depends on the technical expertise of the orthopedic surgeon. But for this article, let's assume those orthosurgeons are very good, highly experienced. 
All surgeries in this report were done by one of four orthosurgeons with between 15 and 26 years of experience with emphasis in sports medicine. Therefore, we assume a good degree of competence at surgery. In that case, we can ask the question which findings on MRI were associated with better or worse outcome after surgery. We have some information already based on surgical reports, but there's actually little information in the literature how MRI findings affect outcome. At surgery, there are worse long-term outcomes after rotator cuff repair for older patients, more severe rotator cuff tears, longer duration of shoulder pain, and decreased range of motion before surgery. One other odd factor, if the patient had an insurance claim because the shoulder injury was due to injury on the job, then outcomes after surgery are also worse. One reason could be repetitive motion at work. For example, workers in an Amazon warehouse might be doing a lot of lifting of boxes over their heads. Maybe warehouse workers have cuff tears from overuse rather than acute injury. Or perhaps patients injured at work have an economic reason to complain about shoulder pain even after surgery. If they have continued pain, perhaps they could get an insurance payout or perhaps stay off the job a bit longer. Purpose. The purpose of this study was to determine which preoperative MRI findings are associated with residual shoulder pain and disability despite having appropriate surgery for rotator cuff tear. Methods. The authors evaluated the MRI scans of 141 patients who had a full thickness rotator cuff tear. All the patients had surgical repair of the cuff. All of the patients completed a survey about their pain before and after surgery. The injury survey had 11 questions for the patient about their shoulder disability and pain. The same questions were asked before and after surgery. The survey used was a standard disability survey considered to be validated to be reliable. Based on these 11 questions, each patient gets a score that goes from 0 to 100 points. Higher numbers are worse. A change of 20 points or about 20% in the survey score is clinically significant. Results. There were only three MRI factors associated with patients changing their answers to the survey before versus after surgery. The most important MRI factor was the degree of rotator cuff retraction. Remember that retraction of the torn rotator cuff is evaluated on the coronal oblique images. For every 15 millimeters greater retraction of the torn rotator cuff tendon, the patient disability score was about 20% worse compared to patients who did not have 15 millimeters of retraction. That does not mean that all patients with 15 millimeter tendon retraction do worse just that those with 15 millimeter tendon retraction or more do not recover as much function as those who do not have tendon retraction. The second most important MRI factor was the extent of the rotator cuff tear. The width or extent of tear is evaluated on the sagittal oblique images. For every additional 10 millimeters greater extent of tear, the recovery after surgery was about 20% less on the survey. Again, a change of about 20 points on the survey was clinically significant. The final factor on MRI was only related to outcome in a minor fashion. More tendon degeneration by MRI was associated with worse outcome. I used to be concerned about fatty infiltration and atrophy of the supraspinatus muscle, but there were very few of these patients. The shoulder surgeons already eliminated most of these patients from having surgery in the first place. Conclusion. Rotator cuff injuries are painful and cause disability. 
Patients have pain or weakness when rotating or lifting their arm. They may have difficulty with sleep due to chronic pain. About 200,000 people in the U.S. have rotator cuff repair each year. The full recovery from surgery takes at least six months, so patients and physicians need information that relate to outcome after the surgery. In patients carefully chosen to have surgery, every 15 millimeters greater retraction of the torn rotator cuff results in clinically worse outcome after surgery. And approximately every 10 millimeter greater extent of tear on the sagittal view results in clinically worse outcomes. If the torn tendon shows degeneration based on increased T2 in the remaining fibers, that is also a poor prognostic factor. Finally, these results are based on self-reports of patients before and after surgery. Since the same survey questions are asked, we think that patients should be pretty honest about their disability if they get better or worse after surgery. But if you are the patient and decide to undergo surgery, odds are you are optimistic, glass half full. That is, merely because you underwent surgery in the first place, you are predisposed to tell us that you are feeling at least a little bit better after surgery. Most of the time, this internal decision that we will feel better after surgery is a good thing, but not always. You may recall the infamous trial in the New England Journal of Medicine about knee surgery. Many knee surgeries were being done for osteoarthritis. Orthopedic surgeons would debride the torn meniscus and damaged cartilage. Patients felt better after the surgery. In 2002, about 80 patients had sham surgery. They were told they had a standard surgery, but even though they had anesthesia and a real knee incision, nothing further was done inside the knee. This was the placebo group. The other 80 patients had typical surgery to debride the joint and the meniscus. The outcomes for the placebo group, sham surgery, and the real surgery were the same. Even patients who had sham surgery thought they had improved after that surgery. This research indicated that knee surgery for osteoarthritis was a waste of time and money, even if patients convinced themselves they felt better after the surgery. Well, I suppose they were also not so happy after having had been told about the sham surgery. But let's conclude on a more positive note, that on the whole, most people are generally optimistic and believe their doctor will make them better. Our next article is yet another new and remarkable development in ultrasound. The technology is called Super Resolution Ultrasound, like many new developments, the authors demonstrate the technology in an animal model, but I think it's worthwhile to hear about this development. The research is done by an excellent medical physics group in the United Kingdom at Imperial College London. The title is 3D Super Resolution Ultrasound Imaging of Rabbit Lymph Node Vasculature in Vivo by Using Microbubbles. The first author is Jackie Zhu. The senior author is Dr. Mengzing Tang. Background. The concept of super-resolution ultrasound. The designation is super-resolution, and super is just not an adjective here. The term super-resolution refers to a unique ultrasound method. We need to review conventional ultrasound a bit. With typical ultrasound, you recall that we get high spatial resolution by using higher frequency ultrasound probes. Perhaps for an abdomen exam, the probe is 5 megahertz, 5 million cycles of sound per second. The spatial resolution for abdomen ultrasound is a little less than one millimeter. That's okay for a liver tumor. 
but heart disease is the most common cause of death and disability in the world. If the patient has a coronary artery plaque or dissection, an ultrasound probe may be placed inside the coronary artery. The coronary plaque is only two or three millimeters thick. We already know the plaque is there. We're interested in small details. Is the plaque ruptured or irregular? The ultrasound probe for imaging inside the coronary artery operates at 40 megahertz. That allows a spatial resolution of 70 microns. How do we get 70 micron resolution using a higher frequency ultrasound probe? If you assume that sound travels at a constant speed, then the wavelength, the distance between the peaks of the sound wave, is inversely related to the frequency. The wavelength is smaller with very high probe frequency. It is the length of the sound wave that determines the theoretical lower limit for spatial resolution. To review, intracoronary ultrasound is the method used in medicine with the highest spatial resolution, about 70 microns. How big is a micron? A micron is short for micrometer. There are 1,000 microns per millimeter. Hard to remember, so I find it easier to reference resolution to the size of a red blood cell. A red blood cell is about 7 microns across. In our capillaries, only one red blood cell at a time squeezes through the capillaries. Therefore, the diameter of our capillaries are also about 7 microns. Abdominal conventional ultrasound has a spatial resolution a little less than 1,000 microns, or 1 millimeter. Coronary plaques are imaged at 70 microns, the size of 10 red blood cells lined up, using a 40 megahertz ultrasound probe. High-frequency ultrasound at 40 megahertz only penetrates about 10 millimeters deep into the body. That's why we place the probe directly into the coronary artery next to the coronary plaque. There are two fundamental laws of physics with ultrasound. Number one, the ultrasound wavelength determines the smallest object that we can detect. Number two, high-frequency ultrasound probes cannot penetrate more than a centimeter or so into the body. These are fundamental laws of physics, but super-resolution ultrasound breaks these rules. Okay, how do we break the laws of physics for ultrasound? First, we need to use a bubble ultrasound contrast agent. Bubble agents are available commercially for ultrasound, products such as Sonoview and Definity. These contrast agents have an inert gas contained within a lipid shell. And of course, the bubble size must be very small, smaller than a capillary, otherwise the bubble would get stuck in the capillary and cause air embolus. So we can think that ultrasound bubbles are smaller than a red blood cell, about 7 microns or less. The trick with super-resolution ultrasound is first to locate the position of each ultrasound bubble. Let's say you find the 7 micron ultrasound bubble, that's great. But with a little image processing, you can actually estimate where the location of the middle of the bubble is. In effect, finding the middle of the bubble improves spatial resolution by a factor of 2. Instead of 7 microns, the resolution is about 3.5 microns. Or use even smaller bubbles to improve your resolution further. Then there are more tricks with super-resolution ultrasound that remove the background stationary tissue. Super-resolution ultrasound can show precisely where the bubbles are located, although it does not show the tissue around the bubble. Purpose. Use super-resolution ultrasound to visualize the network of blood vessels in a lymph node in the living rabbit non-invasively. Methods. The authors use really small microbubbles, 
one micron in size to maximize the capability of the technique. The images were compared to conventional B-mode grayscale and power Doppler ultrasound images using an 18 megahertz ultrasound probe. Results. As expected, the conventional B-mode grayscale ultrasound images showed the lymph node as an oval blob. The authors could see the 6 millimeter lymph node, but there was no detail within that lymph node. The lymph node was the same as in your radiology department when using a clinical ultrasound machine to image a lymph node in the groin or axillary region. Power Doppler was a bit better, and some orange blobs were seen within the lymph node, some internal structure with flow. Okay, now super-resolution ultrasound. Remarkable detail. A full network of dozens of small vessels were seen within the lymph node and the authors could even define the direction of blood flow within the node, blood flow going towards the transducer versus going away from the transducer. The resolution was more than double that of power Doppler, down to 30 microns, or about four red blood cells in width. Conclusion. I hope you might have a chance to look at the images in this article. Before this, no one has seen this remarkable network of vessels in 3D of flowing blood in a lymph node in vivo. The authors also provide movies of flow in these tiny vessels in the lymph node. One question you probably have, why bother? First, it is clinically worthwhile to have a new method that at least doubles the spatial resolution of current conventional ultrasound. The resolution doubles while getting about the same depth of penetration as with standard resolution. Why do this in lymph nodes? Certainly, if you have a patient with breast cancer, evaluation of the axillary lymph nodes is an unsolved problem. All sorts of methods are used to try to determine if the lymph nodes are metastatic or not. And in the end, the surgery in that area is crude. The surgeon dissects the axillary region and literally cuts, burns, and eventually pulls out a handful of tissue in lymph nodes. This is not a subtle operation take a look on YouTube of a lymph node dissection of the axilla. But axillary node status is of course critical for breast cancer patients. After this nodal dissection, patients can have prolonged lymphedema as well as nerve injury. Maybe super resolution ultrasound could help for this application or other critical areas where we need a breakthrough in high resolution ultrasound. That concludes this week's articles. I hope these podcasts were helpful to you. Until next time, this is Dr. David Blumke, editor for the journal Radiology. I hope you have a good rest of your week.